take our efforts, our measly offerings, and uh, that you would multiply them. And we pray for those little children now that will receive those boxes. We pray that their hearts would turn to know the God of salvation, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look at Jesus Christ in our word today, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 25 of the book of Matthew. Now, I've been mentioning something that is interesting about what Jesus has been doing since chapter 21, which started his last week of ministry before he went to the cross. And as as Jesus has has come to this crucial moment, just just hours away from the moment that he's been talking about where he would take upon himself the sins of the world and then he would rise again from the dead. It's interesting to look at his messages during that time, during this little window that he had. His, his messages, you might want to say, were forceful. His messages were one of urgency, one of uh, encouragement, but encouragement not to stay where you are, but encouragement to move to where he's going. We see his messages sort of fly in the face of, of many of the culturally relevant messages. I would use that in air quotes, culturally relevant Messages today that deny teaching about the cross, about sin, about the need for repentance, about the need to be born again, and the messages that are more self-help and comforting people in their sins and, and not calling them to repentance. And this was the urgency that, that Jesus had. What can we gather from that? Well, a lot of things, but one thing is the fact that What real love is, is not compromising and acquiescing to those who are denying the truth of the gospel. That's not love. But love is actually telling the truth and desiring that people would be right with God. That's true love. And Jesus was willing to compromise or sacrifice or uh, even injure and harm his relationship with other people because the truth was so important. And the truth is important. And the truth that Jesus is driving home today in our particular scripture is this truth that there's going to be a midnight cry. That's the title of the message today. It's taken from verse 6 where it says, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. So his, his message was that there is going to be a time, and that time is already etched in stone. The time is already on an eternal, eternal calendar. 
The time is already set and every day we are careening forward towards that time. Every day is a day closer to that midnight cry. And what is that midnight cry? We're going to talk about that this morning. But a general way to look at that midnight cry is that we all have a day. All have a day where we will give an account to God for our life, whether we have received Him as our Lord and Savior and our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life or whether we have rejected Him and we will be held accountable for our own sins. But see, as Jesus brings to light this issue of reckoning, sort of like balancing uh, accounts, balancing your, the numbers that, that, that we, for each of our lives, we have a time of reckoning. And Jesus' disciples in Matthew 24 were asking him, when's that going to be? And what they're asking is, when is that final reckoning or that final judgment? That's what they wanted to know. And, and as they were asking him that, they understood something, that there was going to be a time of a, a, a final restoration of the earth where Jesus would come back again. So it's all in light of his second coming. And at his second coming, there will be a separation of the wheat and the chaff of the sheep and the goats. And then also there's going to be a time of a final reckoning. The Bible calls that the great white throne judgment. And so all of us will have that time and the earth, the world as we know it has that time. And this is what Jesus is speaking about. This, this midnight cry, this time where we will be all called to account for our lives and what we have done with Jesus Christ. So as Jesus mentions these, these things about judgment and these things about his second coming and these things about the reconciliation of, of things and judgment and all of these things, we have to ask ourselves, do we properly emphasize these truths the way that Jesus does? So a lot of, lot of our Christian lives is learning how to walk correctly with Jesus in the proper balance. So sometimes we can be really extreme one way or, or another. You know, all we ever talk about is hell and judgment and damnation. And the other side is we never talk about that and we say peace, peace when there is no peace. But we have to have the right balance. Right? And that's what going through the Bible like we do, it gives us the balance because the Bible speaks about things in proportion to the way God wants us to have that balance. So as we look at these particular scriptures, here's here's what we need to be thinking about personally and individually is, are we ready now to meet Jesus? Are we ready now to meet Him? So let's take a look at these scriptures. We're going to go from verses 1 to 13 this morning. As we're looking at this midnight cry, he says in verse 1, He says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. 
And you might want to think about the bridesmaid. So we're getting this picture of a Jewish wedding now. And as we get this picture of the Jewish wedding, he's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing the bridesmaids. Right? So in our, we, we kind of have to look at, at the way we do weddings and, and compare it to a Jewish wedding to get the fullness of this teaching out. But just think about a, a, a girl or a bride. Think about her, her wedding party, her bridesmaids. So that's what the emphasis is on. So it says the kingdom of heaven, it's like ten virgins or ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and that that really means torches it's it's not like the the little lamp that you might be thinking about when jesus in the sermon on the mount talked about not hiding your lamp this is more like a torch so kind of a, a wooden pole or stick maybe three feet long and on the end of it it would have a, a mesh kind of um, wiring. And inside that mesh wiring, they'd put a cloth. And they they would use that to light for nighttime so they can walk around and see things. So this, this story is a way that Jesus is trying to get the audience, which is us today, but in the text, his disciples, he's trying to get them to understand that there's a there's a wedding party, there's bridesmaids, and there's a difference in the bridesmaids. It says that, first of all, they are all the same in this one way. They're all the same in this one way. They all had the torch, which had the capability of doing what was necessary. But, it says... When they went out, when they took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom, five of them were wise. That means that they, they were thoughtful. They were considering things beyond themselves. They're considering the whole scenario, the whole picture. And then he said, and then five were foolish. That, that word is Foolish is moros. That's where we get the word moron. That's it. Actually, means just stupid. Sorry, that's what it means. And it says in verse three, those who were foolish, they took their lamps or they took their torches, and they took no oil with them. So, what does that mean? So. So you'd have that that torch with wire mesh with cloth inside. And think about it. If you had a, a cloth and you lit it on fire, that wouldn't last very long, would it? Right? It just consume the cloth unless it was like the burning bush scenario, which it's not. But it would just burn. It wouldn't last long. And, and so the oil would be a, a little kind of canister or jar or vessel that they would take oil in so that they could put the oil on the cloth, on the torch, and that would allow that torch to burn longer, burn as, as long as they needed to, to burn. So there were, there were some, the foolish ones, they didn't take the oil, but they had the torch and they had that, but no oil. But the wise, they took oil 
in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. So what is this? What is this saying? What picture is this painting? So let's just back up a little bit and understand something about a Jewish wedding. This, a Jewish wedding really had three phases to it. A Jewish wedding would be um, very village-oriented. So uh, the Galilean wedding in the area of the Sea of Galilee, they'd have all these villages, these little villages, these little towns. So right away it might be harder for us to picture that, the way we live and, and the customs that we have. But but just picture living in a very small town somewhere. Does anybody live in a very small town today? Anybody? Nobody here lives in a very small town. But, you know, if you go out a little bit, I don't know, Munster or something, or, I don't know, a little. So you're talking, you know, towns that, you know, have maybe a few hundred people. So everybody would know everybody. You know, think about maybe the Midwest and, Something like that. So it's a very small town, these villages. And the first part of this wedding, so think about these weddings in three parts. The first part of this wedding would really be a transaction between the fathers. So there would be a price negotiated for a dowry. A dowry would be something that the groom's father would arrange with the bride's mother. And it would basically be a price... And what was important about that arrangement was that the father of the bride would hold that dowry in case something happened to the husband, that she would have something to take care of herself with. She would have some finances to take care of herself. But it would start with this fatherly arrangement. And when that arrangement was made, so they're they're involving families and the village would all know about it. And this is this would be one of the most exciting things that the village would ever see. This would be the most amazing event. This would be something where ripple effects in the in the village would go out. I did, they're getting married. They're getting married. And the excitement would just burst to lead to the second event. The second event would be the betrothal. The betrothal was what we might think about as an engagement, except for it was actually legal and binding. So in regards to the betrothal, there would be a ceremony. And the, the people would be involved. The village people, they'd watch. So the community would be involved. The families would be involved. And they would make a contractual arrangement to be committed to one another. And then the third part of that, would be the actual marriage feast. That's the third part. Before the marriage feast and after the betrothal, the bride and groom now would be legally connected to one another. You'd actually, in the betrothal period, you'd have to go through a legal divorce to separate. So the, the, the groom would go back to his father's house and the groom would then take time to prepare things for the moment that they come together. So a lot of times they would add another 
extension onto the family's house, the father's house. They'd add another part of that. They'd um, actually extend their father's house and they would live there. Uh, in other cases, they would they would build their own house, but it would take a while for the groom to get everything arranged and everything set. Meanwhile, the bride, she would be also arranging things like her dress and thinking about the things that she would need for the marriage. And she would be with her, her bridesmaids. She would just have to wait. And usually it would be about a year's time and she would be there waiting. So you think about the anticipation of this event. You think about as as the the groom is preparing a house. You think about as the groom is setting things up every day. He would, he would be thinking and, and motivated to do what he's doing because he can't wait for the day that they can actually come together and be together. And so he's willing to work. I think about Jacob in the Bible that he worked seven years for Leah. And then his father-in-law ripped him off and gave him uh, the daughter that he didn't want. And he faked him out. And he said, oh, it's okay. Work another seven years. And then you can have Rachel. I'm sorry. Yeah, Leo is first and Rachel is second. He wanted Rachel. But 14 years he was willing to work and, and labor. But just think about the motivation involved. And think about the, the prize. Think about the goal. Think about how that, that work over, in our case, over a year, because of their focus on the prize and because they knew something was going to happen, because they realized they already had an arrangement and a commitment, then I would imagine that year would go by fast, but each day it would just be painstaking. But they would be thinking, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And this was the scenario where kind of dropped in in the scenario where those first two aspects of a Jewish wedding were already complete, and now we're at the, the end of that waiting time. And now that, that anticipation of something that they knew was going to happen, now it's happening, and it describes the, the bride. They, the bride would sleep in her wedding dress every night. Why? Because the groom could come at any time. And when he came, he would come at night, at midnight, and it would be dark, so that's where they need to have the torches, and it would be this loud procession through the town that would wake everybody up in the town out of their dead sleep and say, it's time, it's here, this is it. But imagine the bride, she'd be sleeping with her bridesmaids, because they had to be ready too. Because they were a part of the, the wedding and, and they wanted to get into the wedding feast. So, so the third aspect of the wedding feast where they had actually come together, there would be the, something called the fetching. So this is where the father of the groom would tell the groom, which would be his son, he would say, it's time, son. Go get her. The son couldn't do that on his own. He, he couldn't say, Dad, I'm going to go get her now. I don't care what you think. I'm going to go get her. He couldn't do that. He'd have to wait for the dad. So imagine the groom every day looking at his dad like, Now? 
That'd be like, mm-mm. Next day, he'd go to work. At the end of the day, he'd be like, now, Dad? Mm-mm. And this would go on and on and on until finally Dad would say, it's time. And imagine just all the feelings and the emotions and the anticipation. And the son then would go from his prepared house and he would go and as he would go through the town, he would have his torches lit and people from the town, if they woke up, they would join the procession. And then they would join and then the, the, the bride, the bride would hear the noise and she would wake up and her bridesmaids would wake up and they'd say, it's time, it's time, it's time. And they would already be ready. They're already dressed. Every night she'd be going to bed ready, dressed, and then they would go out. But in our scenario, what we see is they're out of the ten. We see that five had the oil and five did not. So first off, what we're seeing in this midnight cry, this time where we're, we are going to be face to face with God, this time where we are going to either be excited He's coming or be sad that He's coming. We see that, that five of them had this insightful preparation. That's the first point. And that, that really brings to light where we are now and the necessity that we need to have in our own lives now personally is we need to have insightful preparation. What do I mean? What does this mean? That means that we know something's coming. right? If you're a believer, you should know something's coming. If you're not a believer, you know that you're going to die. You know something's coming. You know this can't go on forever. You look at the mirror and see things changing. Even fall is a sign things are changing. We have these signs all around us that they, there's cycles, there's things that happen. And, and so maybe some of you, you, you're preparing for fall. Maybe, you know, you're, you're seeing these signs. So you bring out some coats and maybe you've turned on your heater in your house and you're, you're, you're doing things because you know something's coming. So the five, they knew something was coming. And the five, because they knew something was coming, what they did was they prepared themselves. And their preparation was because they knew. They had insight. Right? They were aware. And so this is why we have these teachings in the Bible about the future, is because God wants us to be aware. He wants us to, to know how things are going to go down. And, and whether that's we're, we're told how things are going to happen in the world, which we're told, or it's just knowing for you and I that you and I one day won't be here anymore. And as we, you know, as we become more aware of those things in our life, then we're better able to live our life. And this is that insightful preparation. So, so the, for the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I know what's coming? Am I understanding first in my own life personally that I'm told to number my days? The Bible says it's life is a vapor. Life goes by so fast. And when we look at life in comparison to eternity, what would that even look like on a radar screen? If you, if you just lined up our life here on earth, which, you know, generally, if, you know, 
80 years, 80, 70 years, something like that. It's some people longer, some people shorter, but, but you know, that's pretty much what you have. So where would that fit on a timeline? If you had a, a timeline of eternity, you wouldn't even see it. Right? If you backed up enough and you looked at a timeline of eternity, you wouldn't even see that little dot. Now, in relationship to proportion, if that be the case, is that the right proportion that we have in our life? The way we live our life, the way we see our life in this world, knowing what's coming up, knowing what's really important, knowing what's really valuable. And this is what Jesus was talking about earlier in Matthew 24, where he said when, when he comes back, people will be carrying on like the world is it. Not really being mindful of the fact that there's going to be an eternity coming up. And that we're given the details about eternity that we have to know and understand. So are we living our life in correct proportion to that? And this is what Jesus also emphasized in his ministry. The importance of living for eternity and not living for this world. The importance of investing in eternity, building up treasures in heaven and not on earth. This is where Jesus says, where your heart is, is where your treasure is. And so is our proportion correct? Are we invested in eternity? Are we investing in our future home? Are we living for that home? Are we understanding our role here in this world? Our role is is not to accumulate and acquire and build up and to be selfish. This this was what Satan tempted Jesus about. If if you know if you follow me or do what I say, then you can have this and you can have these things of the world. And and Jesus didn't fall for that trap. So as we understand this first point, we have to understand that we have, have to have an, an insightful perspective. We have to have an insightful way that we live our life. And that insightful way is the proper preparation. What does Jesus mean when, when he's referring to the oil? What does that mean? So the Bible speaks about oil being compared to the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about When you're born again, when your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, when you're truly a son of God, what happens is you have the Holy Spirit come inside of you. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, it it actually says that that is the Holy Spirit in us is the down payment, is also the guarantee that we'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1.13. He says, In Him, in Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, you trusted Him. You trusted the gospel of your salvation in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that seal is a, a mark or a distinguishing characteristic that, that now you have the Holy Spirit, now you're mine. Now you're official. Now you're my child. Now your sins are forgiven. And the way you know that is you have the Holy Spirit. 
And then he says in verse 14, who is the guarantee. So you might want to circle that when you ever get there or look at that. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So it's this Holy Spirit. And I, I believe this is what this is talking about. So on one hand, you have people, they, they may have the torch, they may have the cloth, they may have a, a flicker of godliness or desire for God. But at the end of the day, it's all fumes. It's all smoke. It's not real. It's not substantial. This is the point that Jesus has been driving home. Jesus has been driving home this point of authenticity. Are you really a child of God? Or have have you, have I, been trusting in some outward form that makes me think I'm truly born again? So as we see the, the torch, you might want to think these are people that that involve themselves with spiritual things. These are people that that may consider their connection with other Christians or being part of a church body. They may count on that for their salvation or they may count on their works or they may count on their family lineage or they may count on the fact that they're American or they vote a certain way politically, but they're using all these external things to demonstrate their allegiance to God. And you might want to say they're close. This is the most tragic part of this particular section of Scripture. Jesus is saying there are people that are really close. Right? They're, they're, they're part of this group that are going to meet. There, there's some sort of belief that they have that they would actually go out with the wedding party. But what Jesus is driving home here is, is so important and it's this fact and this is where this whole thing is, is headed is, is are we truly born again? Are we trusting in His work and not our own work? Have we truly received Jesus as our Lord and Savior? And then as, as we see, as we're going to see this progress, then what evidence is there of that in our life? The Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. Jesus said that. And so as, as we have this picture now, we progress on and you have this exciting event. You have the groom coming. You have the bridesmaids coming. Some have the oil for the lamp and some don't. Look what it says in verse 6. He says, and at midnight a cry was heard. And, and this, this is the message for all of us today. This is the time of reckoning. This is the time that we all will have. This is the time we all must be ready for. And we have to know it's coming so we can prepare and live in a way where we know it's coming. But these bridesmaids, they, they hear the cry. And here's the cry. Behold, 
The bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Imagine the adrenaline rush. Imagine when you're sound asleep at night and you hear a noise or your dog starts barking and it just, just this adrenaline, just what happens? You're on alert. Like, you know, you start hyperventilating, but in their case, they were excited. Imagine being at a airport and waiting there for somebody you hadn't seen in a long time. You're kids or your family members and and you're sitting there and you know the plane's going to come and you can't wait for it to get there. And as you wait and you see these planes come and land and you, you know, that's not it, that's not it, but it's coming. And, and you know your loved one is going to be there and you just can't wait and you're so excited and then it seems like it's taking a long time and you kind of relax a little bit and then you hear the roar of that plane engine, you see it, and you, that's the one. That's it. And then everything within you is is awakened and ready and alive and excited. Now you compare that to, to somebody that's there working at the airport. And, and somebody that's not anticipating somebody coming. They just they're working at the airport. And they're doing their job, whatever it is, maybe it's TSA and they're scanning you and checking your bag and making you take out all your goodies and, you know, f- stuff you forget. You're like, oh man, I had that gun shell in my pocket. What, how, I, I don't know. I, that actually happened to me last time, <laughs> last time I traveled actually. It was empty, but it was, I don't know. It was in my backpack. I'm like, oh, uh-oh. One time I had a box cutter in my, bag as well. I used to work at Costco. Um, so I had my box cutter. That was a bad deal too. But but TSA, they're checking and they're not excited. They're excited about finishing their job probably, right? Getting off and, you know, but 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 they're, what are they focused on? And if you work for TSA, this is not, this is just an example. So you, you're focused on your job. You're focused on the suitcases. You're focused on you know, the x-ray, or focus on people that look shady, or focus on, you know, weird bottles and people's shoes and making sure their their laptops outside of their back, all that stuff. So you're focused on that. But the other person, they're there because they're thinking about their loved one coming. They're, that's a whole different thing. And this is the picture sort of that's being painted for us. That anticipation, and because you knew they're coming, have you ever been at the airport and you you see one of those um, celebrations of somebody in the military that's come home, and people are there, and balloons, and signs, and all that stuff. So it, it's that's sort of what we're told to do, and how we're to live in regards to Jesus coming back. That we're to to live where we're like going to welcome him, and we're thinking about it. we can't wait till he comes back. And that's sort of juxta opposed to a, a way that other people are living where they're so focused on the things of earth that they're, they're not even thinking about Jesus coming back. And so this cry goes out. It's a, a behold. It's he's here. The bridegroom is coming. And then the exhortation, go out and meet him now. And so... The wedding party goes. The wedding party moves. In verse 8 it says, And the foolish said to the wise, 
give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Imagine that feeling. It's here. We've been sleeping in our dresses. We've been anticipating this moment. And it's finally here. And we're getting the call. And we're going out. And my adrenaline's rushing. And I'm excited. And, and now my light's not working. I have all the stuff. I have the torch, the wire mesh. I have the cloth inside. But now I can't see anything. I'm in, in the dark. And now it's, it, it, it's here. And I'm not ready. So what do they do? They say to the ones that have oil, give us some of your oil. Imagine the desperation. Give me some of that. But the wise said, no, because if we give you our oil, there shouldn't be enough for us and you. There's not enough for everybody. But instead, Go to those who sell and buy your own oil. What is that saying? Are these wise bridesmaids selfish? The point of this is, my second point is, the individual responsibility. Right? Each person has an individual responsibility before God to have their own relationship with Him. And there's going to be a time that we see here that that when this happens, there are going to be people, and I find it interesting that five out of the ten did not have the oil. I don't think we can, you know, make a hard and fast rule of saying 50% of the people that say they're saved are not saved. I'm not saying that, and I don't think that's right. But I think we can gather from this that it's it's significant. That this is an issue. I think we can gather from this that, that Jesus is making the point. He's not just doing it here. He's been doing that all along. There's, there's many people that have all the outward appearances of being saved. And when the time of reckoning comes, they're going to find themselves without the necessity or the necessary elements that they need to be saved. And what is that? It's Jesus Christ himself. They're going to be without Jesus Christ. They're going to be without salvation. They're going to be without forgiveness. They're going to be without imputed righteousness. They're going to be without the Holy Spirit, the guarantee and the seal of their salvation. And so as you kind of put yourself in these bridesmaids' wedding gowns, so to speak, and you think about what that must be like, well, we have to understand this is real. This is Jesus comparing and talking about the kingdom of heaven and his coming and judgment. And he's telling us that there are going to be people who think they're going to be good and they're going to be going to meet him. And they're going to, they're going to be without the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to be desperate and they're going to ask others, well, can I have some of your Holy Spirit? Can't we share? And the answer is no, you can't share. That everybody is responsible individually and personally for their own relationship with God. So we can't ride anybody's coattails. We, we're not going to stand before God with anybody else. It'll be us and God and the only answer will be is do we have Jesus? And so in this 
scenario, you see that we all have to make that personal decision. Look at verse 10. And so they went to buy. It's already happening. But they're without the Holy Spirit. They have a lot of outward substances and things that they think are good. But now the moment is here. And that, that's what we have to let see, seep into our bones, that there's going to be a moment. And at this moment, there's a significant amount of people who now, as they went to meet the groom, now they have to go away from the groom to go and find oil. And I think this is where we get the term extra virgin olive oil. I'm not sure. I think this is where that comes from. You might want to trace that a little bit. But why they went to buy? Now the bridegroom came. See the significance? They're going, they're away now. And he's here. And those who were ready, might want to underline that, those who were Ready. What did they do? They went in with him to the wedding. So those who had the necessary elements in the Holy Spirit, they went with the bridegroom and they went in. And as they went in, notice what it says next. The door was shut. The door was shut. And to me, this is one of the most difficult sections of Scripture personally to read and understand. And it's because of this. I have a hard time understanding the finality of this. There's so many do-overs in life. Thank God, right? In in this life, in, in America, we get chances. Right, you can blow it time after time again, and there's chances. This, this is it. What this suggests is that in this world, the opportunities that we have are plentiful, but there will come an end to that, and that's when the door is shut. It's over. And imagine realizing at this moment. That when that door shuts, it's shut for eternity and that's it. There's nothing else. And having to come to terms with that at this moment. So in in verse 11 it says, Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And now it's too late. But notice this. They didn't know it was too late until they realized they didn't have what they needed. That was the moment that they realized it. And so somehow, some way, they have rejected and denied and probably replaced true faith in Jesus with their own works or their own self-fulfilled prophecies that weren't of God and subsequently rejected him over and over and over until the point there's actually a shut door and that's it. 
Your fate is sealed. And this midnight cry for us is now. It's when we live on the earth. This is our time. And this is it. This is what's given to us. And it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis painted for us in his little book called Screwtape Letters. As these demons were getting together and discussing strategies of how to prevent people from going to heaven, one demon said, let's tell them there's no God. And they talked about it and conferred and said, that's okay, but all creation shouts God's existence. So I don't know if that's the best scenario or strategy. And then they said, well, let's tell them there's no hell. They said, that's pretty good, but... You know, people understand justice and, and the importance of, of justice. I don't know if that's the best strategy. And then the last demon said, how about we tell them there's no hurry? And they all said, that's it. Just tell them there's no hurry. Just tell them don't worry about it. Just tell them everything's going to work out okay. Just, just give them the impression that they don't really have to do anything. Give them the impression that if they wait till their last breath and do it, that, that would be okay. And that strategy, I think, is effective in our day and age. Let's land this plane in verse 12. So he brings this all together and says this, but he answered and he said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Let me in. Let me in. I don't have the oil. Why did they not have the oil? Because they didn't know him personally. And that's what, what Jesus is driving home to us today. You have to know him personally. You, you can't know about him only. That's not enough. Just knowing about Jesus is not enough. You have to know him personally. And the only way that we know him personally is to receive him as our personal Lord and Savior. And that's the difference. And Jesus is going to say, there are going to be people, this is written in God's holy word for us to see for all eternity and all time, there are people that are going to stand before God and said, say, I did all this, I was around people that knew you, and I went to church, and he's going to say, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So then he says in verse 13, then he says, so he says, watch therefore, because of everything we just talked about, watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So what does that mean to us? That means we have to live our life watching. And how do we watch? Jesus talked about when our eye is bad. It's because we're looking at things of the world and in essence, focusing on them, idolizing them, worshiping them, prioritizing them. How do we watch? We keep our eyes on Jesus. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we live for Jesus. As we live for Jesus, we're ready. We're excited for him to come. Our perspective is good. We understand the reality of denying Jesus, and so we look for him. We live looking. We live aware. It reminds me of Gideon as he whittled down his army 
to such a small number of 300 men, the last differentiating feature was have your guys go lap up water. And the ones that lapped up water and they just stuck their face down and lapped it up, that, that showed they weren't watching. But then the others he kept, they're the ones that kept their eyes up. And they were drinking because they weren't focused on the things of self and the things of this world. They're focused on the important things. And they did what was necessary for, to sustain their body, but they didn't live for that. And that was Gideon's mighty men. And so as we wrap this up this morning, there's a midnight cry. There's a time of reckoning for all of us. And Paul said, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. When we can live for Christ, we can face this world without fear, without the biggest fear of not being right with Him, not fearing our eternity, and then not fearing the things that the world gives us that tries to make us live in fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. You know how that goes? Power and a sound mind. Keep your eyes on Jesus and live full throttle with everything that is in you for Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. I thank You for my brothers and sisters who have sat and listened and received your word in their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that now the the word would continue to do its work in their heart. I pray that your word would have its desired effect. And as we learned this morning, the desire effect that that we would have a sense of urgency, a sense of awareness, a sense of focus, Lord. That we wouldn't get caught up or entangled in the things of the world, Lord. I pray that you'd help us all, Lord. It's so easy. We get so distracted. There are so many things, Lord, that are pulling us away. But help us to digest what you have before us today and live differently. Live for you, Lord. And whatever we do, let us do it as unto you, Lord. And finally, Lord, I want to pray for anybody, Lord, that's listening. As, as we, we capture the feeling and the emotion and the intensity of your words, that we have to make a decision now. We have to be right with you now. And so I want to pray for for anybody that doesn't have the oil in their lamp. Anybody that is not ready to meet you. Anybody maybe even that's presuming that they're okay like these bridesmaids. They were presuming that they knew you, but they didn't. And so I want to pray that we just finally finalize this question and this decision this morning by receiving you, Lord Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you right where you are, wherever you are, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
And to know as you're doing that, you're forsaking the world. You're forsaking yourself and you're saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. You are my King of kings and Lord of lords. And so give your life to Jesus this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord before we go in song. We're going to have our prayer team here up front. And I want to encourage you as we're singing this this last song, if you'd like prayer about anything. If you're not sure if you're right with God, now's the time to do it. Just make sure. Put that question to rest. And make sure you're right with Jesus. If you need prayer about anything else, they're ready, willing, and able to pray with you this morning. God bless you guys. Let's sing unto the Lord. I love you guys. God bless you guys.